Hello, and welcome to the Baseload Podcast, where you'll hear common sense and unfiltered commentary on the Australian energy sector. My name is Ben Beattie, I'm an engineer, and I'm sceptical of everything. What disturbs me a real lot is some of the advice that this government's receiving from the bureaucrats in Canberra is false and misleading. I, I think that's, 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 that's the heart of the issue, is that the, the advice that the government's getting on about and the ability to us to make this transition, I don't think is accurate. Paul Broad there on ABC Radio recently discussing his resignation and uh, not holding back on his criticism of our energy bureaucrats. For my part, I sincerely hope he's including the state and energy ministers and their staff, the federal energy minister and his staff, uh, and a fair slap of that criticism should go to our uh, initialisms, the AEMC, the AER, the AEMO, the ESB. Now, I'm reserving my criticism for the leadership of these organisations, not, not the people who do the day jobs. The former head of AMO, Audrey Zeebelman, in an interview stated that her staff prioritise decarbonisation over keeping the lights on. Now, from the head of the organisation whose sole function is to keep the lights on, that's a pretty radical statement. Audrey Zeebelman on the Energy Unplugged podcast. Is it about, is it about protecting consumers? Is it about the consumer bill and keeping the lights on? Or is it about decarbonisation uh, and, and enabling the energy transition. If you were to say one or the other of those two kind of defines why someone joins AEMO right now, which one would it be? Oh, I think for most of my staff, it's, it's probably the first thing would be they want to be part of the evolution of the sector to be a decarbonised sector. They want to solve these issues. And secondly, they want to do it because they want to help Australia and uh, consumers. So it's it's sort of a both and. They're doing it because they believe in it. They believe it's important and they mm. believe it's important for Australians. It's it's very much focused on that. Some insights there on why Paul Broad might be throwing some criticism at the bureaucrats. Moving on to the Curry Curry gas-fired power station. The ALP's federal election campaign mentioned a 30% green hydrogen fuel blend. Unfortunately, that will only give them a 10% emissions reduction. When you when you do the calcs and do the spreadsheet, and it's the information's readily available, what what you'll find is that the electricity consumed in generating the hydrogen through electrolysis uh, is more than the gas turbine can generate using that fuel. So it's a it's a net loss. It's very inefficient uh, and super expensive. <laughs> One wonders what the uh, what the actual point of hydrogen is. Uh, it's certainly not to run a power system. What is necessary to run a power system is dispatchable generation uh, using the least, the lowest cost possible. Uh, Snowy Hydro has been tasked with building a, a gas-fired power station. Uh, here's Paul Broad on where they're at and what they're doing it for. I think it's just a, a political game that gets played. Um, the reality is um, Liddell power station is closing. You need more gas-fired power stations. We need lots more of them. And uh, I committed to Curry Curry on, on the basis that it would be ready to operate to firm up the renewables as it comes in at the time Liddell closes, and it's still on track to do that. So there's, a, there's an inherent truth there in what, on what Paul Broad says about the, this uh, so-called transition, is that uh, we don't appear to be building anywhere near enough of what's required to replace retiring power stations. I mean, Liddell's typical output in a day can vary between 1,000 and 1,200 megawatts, uh, sometimes more, uh, and it's down to three units. But it's there day in, day out. 
Uh, and when you look at Araring, Araring's output, you know, its capacity factor is getting pretty low. It's been squeezed out of the daytime market by rooftop solar, as well as the solar farms and wind farms. Uh, but the Araring's got a few other issues with its fuel supply, of course. But in in terms of what it actually delivers in in a baseload energy, if you look at the period between say 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. every day, Araring's delivering 2,000 megawatts to the grid, and Liddell's delivering 1,000 to 1,200. So there's a good 3,000 megawatts there. And a 660 megawatt gas-fired power station is not going to do it. Uh, a 2,000 megawatt snowy hydro is not going to do it. So you have to wonder what is. Not long after announcing Araring's closure, Origin's CEO Frank Calabria was interviewed on a podcast and stated that he'd fill the gap in Araring's output using gas. He stated uh, gas would be uh, online for days and weeks. Now that sounds a lot like baseload to me. As renewable energy through wind and solar grows... What we will have is um, peaking gas plants. They'll operate over days and weeks when you need that peak capacity to protect the system and to be reliable. When New South Wales consumers catch on to that little detail, I'm sure there'll be some fireworks. Now, just recently in the Australian newspaper, Frank Calabria may may have been interpreted as backtracking uh, on the whole Arara enclosure. So uh, my prediction is that in 2023, you'll have a New South Wales Labor government. Uh, they will then come out swinging, blaming the previous government, somewhat accurately, I must say, for the problems in the market. And they will launch straight into a similar scheme to what's currently happening in Victoria with your lawn, where the Victorian government is entered into a payment deal to keep your lawn online for almost a decade. Stay tuned for that. Paul Broad's resignation from Snowy Hydro is reminiscent of another CEO who fell foul of his political masters, and that, of course, is Richard Van Breeder of Stanwell in Queensland. The story goes that Richard was at a public forum, told the truth about uh, Queensland's 50% renewable energy target, leading to the closure of many of the coal-fired power stations, and uh, a couple of days later, he was out of a job. I hope I hope Paul Broad sticks around. Um his expertise and capability are of his benefit to our uh, ongoing debate. And if he decides to bow out, I wouldn't blame him, but uh, I hope he does stick around and gives us some more in, some more good feedback and some insights into how, how we're going to get through this mess that we're in. Paul Broad with the last word on his ex-boss. Paul, had the relationship, had your relationship with Minister Chris Bowen become untenable? Well, I only met him once, uh, to be frank, and but in, I think in his head it might have. Sticking with the CEO theme, uh, Rob Wheels, CEO of Australia's largest uh, gas pipeline operator, APA, was interviewed on a podcast. The conversation got around to green hydrogen. Rob doesn't sound convinced. Have a listen. There's some work to be done to get those prices down from what's effectively $5 a kilogram down to $2 a kilogram to, to make it even remotely close to, mm. to what customers might be prepared to pay. Paul Broad also touched on green hydrogen in his interview. We might then debate about hydrogen. Well, while it's a wonderful opportunity, hydrogen is, is many, many years away from being commercial, many, many years away. And to think you could have hydrogen running to curry curry when there's no hydrogen produced at all in Newcastle and the chances of being produced in the next 10 years are pretty minimal, you know, it suggests you're going to do something in the end of 23 when this thing will be built. It just doesn't make any sense. 
So what does Twiggy Forest know that these guys don't? Twiggy, of course, is preaching 15 million tonnes per year of, of hydrogen production in Australia. This will require in the order of 750 terawatt hours of, electric, of electricity generation, uh, around about three times the national electricity market's total demand, uh, along with a whole lot of water, of course. When you, when you consider the low capacity factor of wind and solar, because, of course, green hydrogen can only be produced by wind and solar, Twiggy needs around 300,000 megawatts of installed capacity to produce that amount of green hydrogen. That's somewhere around you know, 3,000 new wind and solar sites spread across the country. I'm not sure if Twiggy understands the implications or the costs or the uh, societal impact of this kind of infrastructure. I'm not sure he's spoken to any farmers who may not appreciate a 500 kilovolt overhead power line through their backyard. CEO of Twiggy's hydrogen business, Julie Shuttleworth, on the Renew Economy podcast. Here in Australia, we've got plenty of wind and solar resources and around the world, we need to develop those to make renewable electricity, green hydrogen, green ammonia to decarbonise. What's driving this? What's going to make it successful? We need scale. We need to keep improving technology. We need manufacturing to plug the supply chain gap. And of course, we need to get projects started so that we learn, put the improvements, the cost improvements, the technology improvements into the next projects and get the firewheel turning of these green hydrogen projects. So we need to get cracking. It's worth noting that nowhere in that interview was Julie Shuttleworth asked about the land use or the uh, social impacts of these renewables projects required to support the green hydrogen. Twiggy, of course, is building a electrolyzer factory in Gladstone in central Queensland, touted as a billion dollar investment. The, the media release talks about 10% of that amount, and it's basically a plant set up to build some electrolyzers and see if they can sell them first. Twiggy's first customer appears to be the Queensland government. Uh, that's for the Cogan Creek Renewable Hydrogen Demonstration Plant. Nothing like a bit of government money to get things started. Hey, Twiggy. So green hydrogen, in my opinion, is just a, a complete farce. Um, it's it's so bad that I, I think it's almost designed to uh, make our energy systems less efficient. There's no, there's no other purpose for trying to make uh, hydrogen through electrolyzers with wind and solar. And of course, uh, the renewables lobby love it. Uh, imagine all that uh, wind and solar contracts that'll go through all the power purchase agreements and all the rest of it. You know, the Australian energy market will just be a pimple on the butt of the hydrogen industry if they have their way. Uh, no, thanks. While we're talking about government spending, let's talk about some uh, borrowings showing up in the Queensland state budget, the 2022-2023. And the section that talks about the public non-financial corporations, which is electricity networks, electricity generation, rail ports, water, and a couple of other smaller things. Table 8.3, borrowings and total assets. So the the budget in 2021-22 for electricity generation was $1.3 billion. The estimated actual expenditure for electricity generation was $9.5 billion. That's a measly $8.2 billion over budget. The only explanation for that in the paper is this sentence, and I quote, Movements over the forward estimates are primarily due to the accounting treatment of short-term financial contracts held by energy GOCs. What shenanigans could be going on in there, I wonder? We'll probably never know. (laughs) 
Australia has so much gas, it's actually one of the gassiest producers of gas in the world. We're right up there with the United States of America, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. This lovely bit of audio is taken from a, a YouTube video produced by the Climate Council, a renewables lobbyist, very active in disseminating propaganda about the fossil fuel industries. In this video, they're attempting to make the argument that Australia's domestic gas prices are negatively affected by being connected to the global gas markets. And that's a fair argument to make. With Russian gas largely exiting the world market, there's a big gap to fill. Supply and demand dictates that the price will therefore increase. And with Australia's domestic market, and on the East Coast anyway, linked to export prices through the LNG plants in Queensland, there's no doubt that the export market is affecting the local market. As we heard, the video lists several gas producers, the USA, Australia, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. But since Saudi Arabia doesn't export any gas and has no effect on the global market, it can have no effect on Australia's domestic market either. The video goes on to make some other misleading and poorly researched claims. For example, they use selectively edited taxation data provided by the Australia Institute to make some misleading claims about the tax and royalties paid by gas companies. Over the past seven years, five of Australia's largest gas companies made $138 billion in revenue. $138 billion! That is a lot of money. And how much tax did they pay on that? Oh, nothing. The no tax story is, is quickly followed by claims of huge subsidies to the oil and gas sector. Unfortunately, on investigation, these... These claims also turn out to be misleading because a lot of that money goes to hydrogen hubs, EV charges, and some of this money even goes to firming for renewables in the form of subsidies to the Curry Curry gas power station. Well, well, they may not pay tax, but you sure as hell give them your tax. The federal government gave the oil and gas sector $976 million in public subsidies last year. The sorry state doesn't end there. The host... Uh, says at one stage that gas exported from Australia is intended to be imported back at a higher price. Uh, uh, this is nonsense. Australia might have to re-import its own gas from Asia because Australia can't send it to Australia. New South Wales already imports 95% of its gas from other Australian states. The, the proposed Port Kembla facility, the section in question that he's talking about, uh, is intended to import LNG produced elsewhere. As the host mentions at the start of the video, there are other countries that produce gas. And according to the whims of the market, some of them do do it cheaper than Australia. The gas corporations did a deal to sell gas at 2002 prices for 30 years without putting any gas aside for everyday Australians. Out of all the mistakes and falsehoods in this video, this might be one of the worst. Uh, what, he's, what he said there is that you've got a locked in price for 30 years, which is incorrect. These gas contracts were set up linked to the oil market. Uh, the ACCC has been running a gas market inquiry for several years now. This information is freely available. The last piece of information in, that I'm going to dwell on here is that the gas companies are responsible for reserving gas for the domestic market. That's a political decision, not a, not a company decision. Clearly, the Climate Council and their ilk find it easier to engage in uh, propaganda and spreading misinformation rather than engaging in the debate, trying to win their audience with a better argument. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.